You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my two good friends who are all back. Uh, Dr. Stephen Kissler, epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler, who's a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. Hey, guys, how's it going? Great. Good to see you, Matt. Wow. Yeah, Great well. for the... You were so excited. There was a two-second delay. And since we are uh, <laughs> trying to go live, and uh, you can only hear me... I quickly gave a manual to Stephen and Mark on how to use sign language so we can go live and we're going to sign language this entire episode. <laughs> so, nope, we're not. Tell a joke. Lame joke. Dad joke. So, it's good to see you guys. I'm glad we're all back. Mark, you've been going crazy at the hospital. Stephen, you're just going crazy being a scientist. Just, or, or you're just going crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't need any more explanation. Yeah, that was awesome. That Yeah, it's like The Shining. So a few things to get going. Obviously, love the reviews. Thank you so much for them. We could always use more. We've tipped over 100. Thank you. I would love to grab over 200 relatively soon, as well as what else? Oh, I was going to say something, but I forgot. Oh, yes. We are almost at 100,000 downloads. So I'm guessing by this week, we'll tip over the edge. Thank you so much. We'll celebrate it with a kazoo next week or something like that. We could always use more support. That's awesome. It feels a little bit like this is a PBS pledge drive. Like I'm just hearing the, the numbers. It does. It's just like, there's a little bit of <laughs> totally. that. It's like, you know, yeah. yeah. Oh, we should have an intermission where like a little dance or something like that. <clears throat> Some Irish, Irish dancing. <laughs> mm. So that, that'd be Fergal. Fergal, if you could provide in Ireland, yeah. uh, some Irish it's dancers. Like actually, there's Yanni is on after, after us. Yeah. Yeah, we we totally. interrupted the, you know, the live. Yeah. Oh man. Oh man. I've seen river dance. It's incredible <laughs> in the 90s. I loved it. It was so good. Oh, yeah. Captivating, riveting. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we could always use more financial support. We love it. Have a lot of stuff. We're trying to get paid off here. Patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. So as little as $5 a month can go a long way or just a one-time donation. PayPal, Venmo, all in the show notes. And just this morning dropped another episode, had a feature mark on living the real. It was fun, man. It was a heartfelt a conversation coming out of some pretty difficult experiences and it was yeah. raw. Yeah, that was raw. It was raw. It'd be interesting to hear how it turned out. Yeah. So check it out. Livingthereal.com. You can subscribe there. I will have that in the show notes and same thing. Mind mapped uh, a conversation with Mark found some things that really hit me and struck deeply. You can do that at, uh, if you want to see it uh, after the podcast, go to livingthereal.com slash Mark Kistler. It's a little difficult because there's two K's in there. Right in the middle, smashed sandwich. So, M R O K K I S S L E R. So, check it out. Okay, let's get going. We have lots to cover. First of all, last week it was just Stephen and I. Mark was was just doing some intense work at the hospital. We brought up paper tests, right, for COVID. Mm -hmm. And you said you're going to do a little bit of digging. I came across that video. I'm like, hey, Stephen, have you seen this video? And of course, like usual, I know the dude. So, so it was a great video. I'll put in the show notes. But what did you come up with with this whole paper test? Is it accessible? Can we get it going? What are the roadblocks? Right. So yeah, so the paper tests themselves exist. The issue is that their sensitivity and specificity is not at the level that the FDA basically wants in order to approve it. So they set the basically the, the sensitivity and specificity of the tests relative to the PCR tests, which are the things that you normally get, you know, if you get the cotton swab stuck up your nose, that's, that's, that's what's happening to you. And uh, so, but that's, that's tricky because so the, 
you can use tests for two different reasons. You know, one of them is for clinical decision-making where you really want a test that's great and that can really tell if you've got any virus circulating in your body. You know, you, you need to know like sort of what course of treatment you need. But you can also use tests for surveillance, and that's where these paper tests are really valuable. And and uh, and that's the issue is essentially that the FDA doesn't have a separate track for regulating tests that are for surveillance rather than for clinical use. And so, well, this yeah. is this is really interesting because that's been one of the big issues, um, even early in the pandemic, was some of the logistical challenges with getting tests yeah. approved through the FDA. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and there's there's some history to this too, just in the course of the pandemic, because another one of the issues is that there there was this flurry of antibody tests that came through that the FDA gave emergency approval to, and a lot of them ended up not working very well. And so I think that to a certain extent, they're also kind of trying to save face from that and to not have another scenario where where, where they're drawing a lot of flack because they approved tests that that don't don't work that well. But these these are fundamentally different tests. They would be used for a different purpose. They're used to tell if you're infectious, which is a really useful thing to know, rather than if you've had the virus at any point in the past, which is also useful to know, but it doesn't help you stop the spread of disease. So, I, I mean, I, yeah, I you can talk to Ali. I, I, I've, for the past week, you know, at various intervals, I've just been pacing around our living room, like talking about like, what can we do about this? Yeah. <laughs> because it's, I think it's so important. I mean, this, this is really probably one of the one of the things that I think is most likely to have a direct and immediate impact on reducing the spread of COVID. Like it's, it's there, we have the technology and it's really about sort of the regulation at this point. And so people are writing to various policymakers, lawmakers to try to figure out like what we can do. Actually, the, the hosts of the interview that, that Michael was on have started collecting these letters that people have been writing to their senators mm -hmm. that you could use as templates to, to sort of Correct. write to your own to try to do something. But, but I think the problem is we don't really know how to access the people who are in charge of making these decisions totally. So yeah. if anybody knows anybody who's working yeah. high up in the FDA, let, let us yeah. know. Yeah, yeah totally. So, Bring them we on the show. The technology. That's right. Would you know, what's the sensitivity specificity specs on these tests? I'm just curious if you know. Right. So, so the issue is that sensitivity and specificity vary over the course of your infection based on how much virus you have in your body, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's the sensitivity and specificity is pretty poor immediately, immediately after you've gotten infected and then long after you've been infectious. So, mm -hmm. you know, you carry viral RNA in your body for probably weeks after, mm -hmm. after you've gotten your illness and sensitivity and specificity are often measured based on that long tail after you're no longer infectious. But the tests are very sensitive and specific when you're in the period where you're cranking out virus, That's, which is when you yeah. want to know when you're infect, infected anyway, because that, that lets you determine. So, so that's incidentally, the I mean, there's no different, the, even our, even the tests, the PCR tests are more sensitive and specific. They have a higher, you know, reliability when you have more viral RNA circulating. So the same thing. And, you know, we've, in the hospital we use, if we have a high concern that somebody is infected and they test negative with the initial PCR, we try to get a lower respiratory tract sample, like a sputum sample, because the yield of that is a little bit higher, so it's harder to get. And so same same principle applies that, and it's kind of an interaction between what your pretest probability is and then these testing characteristics that gives you a sense after the test about whether or not you're infected. Yep, exactly. So what, what I mean, this is this is mind-boggling to me. Like, yeah. I mean, the FDA. I'm pretty sure whoever they are, 
I'm sure they, they, they listen to things and I like, they're, they're not just in this bunker by themselves making up decisions. I feel like this is all over the place. So I'm, it's, 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 it's mind boggling to me that something hasn't been already even publicly announced from either the white house or someplace that this is a real possible hope that we're even looking into, which I don't even think I hear that, which is just like, why is there so many roadblocks to having scientists and, and to, to policymakers to quick iterate on something that's, and I guess, is it just, is it just fear-based? So you, I mean, I go, you don't have all the answers that it was crap. We really screwed up with the antibodies. Let's make sure we get this right. I get that. But at the same time, when so many people are kind of growing almost exponentially like the virus clamoring for this opportunity, why isn't this being part I mean, of I think that this comes down to to some extent to the difference between thinking as thinking clinically and thinking from the public health perspective in a way. And 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 the FDA really was developed to foster and to regulate clinical medicine to to sort of and and I think it's really interesting because a lot of times clinical medicine and public health go hand in hand, but there are times when they do diverge or differ to some extent or the emphases differ. And so the benchmarks that you use to measure the effectiveness of something in a clinical setting are just not necessarily the ones that are relevant in public health. And I think that that, that turns out to be just like, that, that's a really large gap. If you're, if you're really used to making decisions based on their clinical efficacy, it's just really hard to start thinking in terms of populations, in terms of reducing spread, in terms of allowing a lot of imprecision for the sake of the, the greater good. And I think it's, I, I think it actually probably just has a lot to do with habits of thought and with traditions in these institutions that are deeply, deeply ingrained. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot there. I mean, I feel like there's like two things. It's like, I feel like this, this pandemic is just going to expose so many opportunities for growth. Just like you said early on, Mark, with the CDC and the over rigid, just legislative or just the regulations that prevented for us to iterate quickly. And then, of course, there was some moving around and changing and modifying and giving exceptions to bring things out quickly a little late to the game. I'm guessing we're at this other roadblock. It's another area by which we were being revealed the same problem, different manifestation of this, which is just, okay, great opportunity. And I'm just like, I don't know. I'm just mind boggled that we haven't done anything to, 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 to move it forward. I had another thought. I totally forgot about it. I'll bring it back in a second. It was, it was really good too. But uh, I'm just, oh, I'm man. just, I'm, I'm just speechless. <laughs> I'm really speechless. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think the thing is, I was going to say, is like, it, now you guys have to correct me on this one. I feel like this is like the inverse. We're talking about how clinical is so important. We're talking about the difference between anecdotal evidence and clinical mm-hmm. and, the, and, and, and how they work. But I feel like it's almost tipping the scales the other direction in this case. It's like, maybe not, maybe because it's still clinical because you're still looking at the, but now it's like, well, the overarching result of this, the experience of this would be over every day would be beneficial, mm-hmm. right? The experiential would be beneficial that overweights the clinical diagnosis. Am I wrong to say it's kind of the yeah. other, other side of it? I think, well, I think that there's a danger in conflating the difference between a public health frame and a clinical frame mm-hmm. and the difference yeah. between a scientific uh, evidence-based frame and an anecdotal frame. So I okay. think those are two, they're two separate axes because okay. I think what what we need to do are ask questions in a robust scientific way, you know, that's evidence-based, but we may have different thresholds for acceptance of, for instance, of like sensitivity and specificity in, mm. if we're using it in a public health way. Yeah. And so it's one of those things that it's, you know, what are the, what's the question that we're asking first? Um, and then how do we, make sure that our metrics adhere to 
the question, you know, how, how mm-hmm. that's validity, right? Is like, mm-hmm. does it answer the question I'm asking? And I think what Stephen's alluding to is that uh, we're very used to asking questions about the relevance within um, a healthcare setting for a patient who's infected for an individual patient. We're not very used to asking these questions from an epidemiologic frame, which is sure, maybe the paper test isn't going to be all that useful, you know, for you. Matt, if you're feeling sick, but it's going to be tremendously useful for these other things. And so I think, I think that's where that comes from. Okay, great. Thanks for the update. I'm still hopeful. Anybody in there works for FDA listening to this podcast? I don't know. Talk (laughs) to Steven and Mark, get something done, please. Dear God. Stop listening to our podcast. (laughs) Yeah, stop. Call. Call Steven right now. If his phone rings, we'll stop this episode right now. We're going to wait five seconds. Okay, moving on. Okay, so let's, let's continue on. Blood types and coronavirus. I've been waiting for this. I wanted to bring you on, Mark, because we you weren't on last time. Mm-hmm. Is there is there a relationship between these two, or what's what's well, going on? It looks like the the last last word that I saw. So there was an article from July seventeenth that at Mass General Hospital, which is <laughs> the the local a little local hospital down the street from Stephen, heard of it? You know, Mass General. Yeah. Uh, no, it's one of you know it's one of the preeminent hospitals in the in the country and they did a study and it looks like they didn't see a relationship between blood type and severity there'd been some question about if blood type a was more prone to severe disease and i think they did see some signal in this about testing so that that there were certain blood types that were more likely to test positive than those we're not. I don't see a lot of clinical utility in this, to be honest with you. And okay. just in terms of like how I treat patients and would I take their blood count into effect? I think there's other things that probably have a much higher fidelity, you know, a high, what I call kind of a higher signal in terms of predicting disease severity than blood yeah. type. Things like certain inflammatory markers that we're looking at, and really just the clinical characteristics. You know, I think that's far more useful to me as a clinician. So it's interesting. And I think, you know, like we said, anything, all of these studies contribute a little bit to our understanding of the disease and how it works. Mm -hmm. And some of it's going to be useful in the short term. Some of it may be just helpful in the long term. Some of it's maybe more academic interest. So great. You know, you reminded me of what you said that this is kind of like a maybe more of a marginal like result. So, in, where you were saying there's other things, right? And I, kind of with that article that I wasn't going to mention, that I'm going to bring out just because it was like it's clickbait, right? That 40 percent of Americans are at risk of severe, and I think that's what you're getting yeah. to. It's like the 40 percent is basically those people who have diabetes, high blood right. pressure. Right. It's just you our could country. Also bad health. Write an article that says you know <laughs> the the headline says 40 percent of U.S. adults are at risk for severe COVID-19 complications. You could also write one that says 40 percent of U.S. adults suffer from obesity, hypertension, and cardiovascular disease and diabetes, yeah. you know, and, yep. but it, I don't know, I just, as, as we, not to get too bogged down in this, but as we're in a time in which there's a lot of skepticism about the way that the media is covering COVID-19 from certain quarters, I think it's really, ideally, we would be not creating more noise <laughs> You know, yeah. it, that oh, that's that just is what it is. I think just that what are what's our goal, you know, and if our goal is to achieve a certain sense of solidarity and like, let's let's talk reasonably, you know, about kind of like what, you know, Dr. Katz, we were talking about David Katz yeah. many, many weeks ago. I wonder what happened to him. But, he, the, you know, he wrote that article that was very 
measured that really took what I thought was a really good public health approach to this, you know, without downplaying the reality of what's going on. And I think that that sort of thing is a lot more helpful than this sort of thing in terms of bringing people together and sparking reasonable conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you go? Well, which which news outlet is he going to be in? Because they're going to be in one extreme or the other. Like, I, I'm the middle Maybe guy. That's the problem. Nobody I, wants him. Yeah, I, he's too reasonable. <laughs> he's too, he makes sense. Nobody wants yeah, yeah. rationality right now. Yeah. People want, yeah. I'll, we'll have to Google that. Uh, I'm just curious if he's written anything since then. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be great to follow up on him. Okay. So, Vaccines. I want to throw it to you, Mark, because there's been two vaccines now that are, Stevens mentioned a number of things the past couple of weeks, which have been great. We're seeing one vaccine coming into the next stage of trials, really two vaccines. Uh, and you were saying that there might be something coming your way soon in your hospital soon to participate in the trials. Yeah. So it's, uh, we're enrolling patients, which is super exciting. Yeah. So yeah, news was breaking kind of earlier this month that University of Colorado Hospital is one of the sites that's going to be participating in the trial for the Moderna vaccine. And okay. this is the first line. So it looks like they're looking to recruit a thousand patients. And uh, as we talked about, clinical trials have different phases. And this is looking both at safety and efficacy. Um, and it looks like they're going to follow patients for about a year. And so, you know, we've, we've had lots of concurrent clinical trials going on throughout for therapeutics. But this is, to my knowledge, the first one related to vaccine. So that's pretty cool. That's great. And then now I saw this article again, we see this, I see it in my circles of my friends. Well, I see a lot of things in my circle of my friends, but one such thing when it comes to the vaccine, just, you know, they're, they're minor side effects, but they could be pretty bad. You know, one thing I want to throw to you, Stephen, is I don't really know to the extent of how vaccine does, how do they, how they modify things along to the phases? You know, I, I know that they're trying to look at to what extent when you open up to 30,000 people, does it remain healthy? How many side effects? But if there are more side effects, do they change? them or do they just put that as their footnote of the increasing list of side effects? How does that work in this phase of the game? Yeah, I mean, in this phase, if if they were to actually change the, the composition of the vaccine itself, they'd have to go right back to square yeah. one. So okay. if, if, if anything about either the molecular compound or the things that are in the vaccine as well. So vaccines often include both, both the active thing that your body is mounting an immune response to and something called an adjuvant, which basically, yeah. um, sparks your immune response a little bit more heavily so that it makes it more effective. Okay. And if you were to change either of those things, especially the, the vaccine component itself, you'd have to start back at phase one. So now okay. they're looking at dosage and just okay. trying to get a sense for the probabilities of these things. Okay. So, but fortunately there, there are so many vaccines that are being that, that are sort of in the pipeline yeah that if if some fail there's still a lot of different different possibilities that are coming through so okay great you know in light of covid itself i read this article about one-third of covid patients who are, aren't are not hospitalized have a long-term illness i wanted to throw this past you guys have you guys seen much about this i wanted to throw this this clickbait headline for me for all you men out there who don't want to wear masks here we go testicles can suffer damage from coronavirus without actual infection study says science times all right want to wear a mask want to think twice wear, mask, man. wear it wear it wear it proudly wear it proudly keep your manhood on your face uh, though it's, it doesn't, yeah, doesn't do any good yes you know. on your face <laughs> good point keep your <laughs> so, so in light of this really big headline that's going to shake the world that that have, what anything anything new on this or is there are we seeing anything about this that even small minor things have long-term impacts that could 
be pretty yeah you know uh, i think that's been one of the things we've talked about it in just in a clinical setting is it does seem like there's certain symptoms that linger on and people feel pretty cruddy for quite a while after this and i don't know if that's because it's a novel virus to our immune system um or it's just the way it is with this but that's definitely you know i've seen that and you know other people don't have such lingering effects either but i think that's something that's that's real yeah yeah, I was I was looking at this statistic I think before we got on and if I if we're reading the same article it was talking about that symptoms can last they said like weeks up to months. Um, and I, th- I think the average duration of a viral upper respiratory infection is on the order of two weeks anyway. Like you're going to be feeling kind of rough from that for a couple of weeks. So that depending on where their cutoff of long-term symptoms were, that that could sort of inflate that. But that said, I've also been hearing a lot from people in, in hospitals and the primary care settings who who are you know, really starting to focus more on these long-term effects that that do seem to actually. I, I think that is actually a feature of COVID that 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 is distinct from other viruses as far as we can tell but there's there's still just like we haven't run those studies yet okay and you know it's not like i want to get these these like headlines to kind of make people more afraid of the virus my my response is like i just want people to look at it in a real sense like just last week i'm talking i'm hearing the stories about friends and families who are close circles which i think were a decent sample population who you know who who really believe it's still all conspiracy that even the the mortality rates are just make-believe to get people to be afraid i'm like i just can't believe this right so again it's not trying to inculcate fear that that there might be long-term effects but just to Hopefully take it, you know, hey, my goal, our goal, take it moderately seriously. It'd be a great first step, right? Yeah. Into your protection. I found the way that fear is mobilized in conversations mm. about coronavirus to be interesting lately. I've heard that, you know, from a lot of spheres, and I think there's some valence to the language of like, don't be afraid and, you know, or like be not afraid. And there's some, it, often that's even in, in kind of like religious context that I, you know, that you hear yeah. that because it's, and I, it's just interesting to me because there's a discourse underneath that discourse about like, so the assumption there is being, what is it that, you know, one is afraid of when, you know, or that the, that the other person is afraid of when you're exhorting them to be not afraid. Like there's another discourse going on there. And, and often there's a fear, there's a complementary fear, whether it's about governmental control or conspiracy or about other things. And so you're speaking out of, out of one fear into another or from, you know, and, and it's, it's complicated because I, I really, that, that phrase to me personally means a lot. And I have a lot of, it, it, I really like that, but I think that when it means actually what it says, you know, which is, you know, don't, don't operate out of this place of fear and suspicion and anxiety, you know, but out of a place of abundance and, and trust and, you know, care and that sort of thing. And I think it's just funny the way that, that language can be mobilized for these implicit, uh, meanings. I just find that that's, that's a personal note, you know, but I've heard it a lot. And I think it's, it's just worth, you know, recognizing that sometimes just what, what that means and what's the valence behind that and what's, you know, the, the many layers of kind of implication that are, that are in that phrase. And so I don't know, just cause you said that that came up in your family conversation and things like that. Yeah. yeah that's, that's great. It's kind of the whole, you know, tolerance and intolerance and how we can use these things so quickly to like, uh, you know, d- declare someone to be intolerant and judge them. And the fact yourself, you, you have your own intolerance and you advocate tolerance, but it's, it's idea that things are complex and not to reduce things to some kind of quick, trite sentence to get your point across. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And it's also, right. I mean, but I the, think it, you know, the, the implication being that if you're, if you're kind of falling more on the side of 
certain prudent measures like wearing a mask or you know continuing physical distancing that that must come from a place of fear as opposed to a place of you know wherever else it may be coming from i think maybe that's that's the assumption that is most troublesome to me is like you you know don't you know don't assume that that i'm acting out of fear you know we're we're like you know it's not it's not about fear it's about other things you know so yeah. anyway and it goes back to i think when you and i were chatting mark yesterday on the on the living real podcast we're just like just trying to uphold less of a sense of determination mm-hmm. i determine who you are and what you're experiencing yeah. and really try to enter in discovery instead of just trying like maybe even asking the question you know i'm just curious why why do you and then and then and then allow that to inform like oh because you have an elderly mother or oh i get it or, you know if constantly try to understand another person versus to pigeonhole them. I, we could learn a lot yeah. from that. And I think we could come together. Anyway, kind of a left right. turn, but, um, but the language, no, but I, I you love know, it. paying attention to our language. Mm-hmm. So cool. Yeah. yeah. Let's keep rolling. Thank you, Mark. Let's go with the next one here. Scientists know why people lose sense of smell. Yeah. All right, Mark. Well, okay. This is good. So my favorite, my favorite thing about this is that I learned about a new cell today because of this article <laughs> that I didn't know existed. So I'm stoked about that. Oh, shit. And so I Great. love, so histology is super cool. I don't know if you guys okay. have ever in, in uh, your past lives gotten to take a class on histology, but I had a Never. legendary histology <laughs> professor at Baylor College of Medicine. And hold on, quick pause. You know, histology, it clearly for my sake is just the study of what the nose, the, the <laughs> yeah. smell. No. That's great. No, it's about cells. So it's about cells. It's all about structure function. So it's about, it's about the way that microscopic processes, like the set, the way that cells and tissues are arranged, all is coordinated in the functioning of an organism. And so I love it because it's, it's one of the most, it's really, it's a place for just a huge amount of wonder and awe. So my histology professor, Dr. Frank Kretzer, who the late Dr. Frank Kretzer, he passed away uh, actually while we were down in Houston at med school, but he, he would begin our histology classes with a poem by Lord Tennyson. So it was cranny in the crannied wall. we should attach this to the show notes, but it okay, essentially, this is, you know, it's a po- poem about plucking a flower growing out of a wall, beholding the root of the flower. And, you know, and he says that, oh, I'll, I'll have to find it. We'll put it in the show notes, but it's essentially the sense that you can perceive the whole through the very particular and the tiny. And I just love it. And that's what histology is all about is like perceiving, you know, these glimmers of the whole organism and the function and, you know, in the, in the little. And so anyway, the, the apparently I was sitting in the back <laughs> of the room it's riveting. when we Keep were, going. when we were learning about these sustentacular cells, which is like, it sounds to me like a combination of sustaining and spectacular. So it's like, I don't know who, who PhD, you know, candidate got to name those cells, but like spending a lot sounds of time, like something your daughter would come up with sustentacular cells, which support olfactory neurons. So anyway, you smell because there's nerves in your nose and particles, hit up, hit the nerves and it sends a signal to your brain. And apparently there are, as with many neuron cells, there are cells that just support those. So they serve a supporting function. It looks like coronavirus actually attacks the sustaining cells, these sustentacular cells, rather than the neurons themselves. So there'd been a question about it. Is it a neuro? There's some viruses that actually attack nerves and it, it doesn't seem to be the case. It seems to be that these, it's these supporting cells. So interesting. And kind of geek out on that a little bit. It is what it is. That's awesome. So. That's great. Well, good. Well, good. Well, the good news is it's not permanent. 
That's right. Yeah. It comes back. It's temporary. It comes back. Yeah. It comes yeah. back. Yeah. yeah. Great. Okay. So, Steve, in your way, coronavirus, I just say this is be quick because you've been saying this, Mark's been saying this since March. We're seeing it now. Coronavirus cases seem to be kind of ebbing a little bit in the, around the Sun Belt, the Washington Post says, and we're starting to see a rise in the Midwest. Is that yep. an accurate statement? I haven't been able to look, but are we seeing this and this is kind of following what you were expecting? Yeah, that seems to be the case. I mean, it looks like I mean, I've been following Arizona, Florida, Texas, some of the places that have been really rising in the Sun Belt. And it seems like both the number of cases and the positivity in those places seems to be leveling off. It's too soon to say if it's actually turning around, but I think that's good news. But you're right. A lot of other places are starting to rise. And Ed, we were talking a while ago about how a lot of especially particularly infectious respiratory pathogens often just hit places that have high population density sooner than others. And so mm -hmm. to some extent, you know, uh, it's it's so interesting. Like I've, I've been getting pretty consistently calls from reporters asking, you know, sort of like, what's happening? Why are cases rising in different places? Did we reopen too soon? Like, is it people going to bars? And it's like, well, well yes, yes, absolutely. Those things are all playing into it. But there's also this I think sometimes we try to attribute what's happening a little bit too strongly with the actions that we've been taking. So absolutely, you know, like going to bars, whatever, interacting with people like that, that is how disease spreads. It's a necessary condition for disease to spread. But I think also partly what we're seeing is just this diffusion process of contagion through the country that's following roughly a route of population density and just sort of where people are and where they travel to. So it's this really mixture of different elements that's contributing to why we're seeing rises in certain places at certain times. Yeah. Okay. Great. Next thing here, oh, CDC changed their policy a little bit on when you can go back, leave isolation. I clicked on it. I don't think I have it, but I know it's three conditions. But the thing, the ones that changed, it used to be 14 days from the onslaught of symptoms, now reduced to 10 days. So it sounds like there's been a little more research to say roughly about 10 days that you can go back. I'm curious, just throw you guys, what do you do when like, because we're dealing with our own, our own work, that it's one thing if you're sick, but if you have kids that are sick, right, and you're home, they have a fever, you know, we're saying, okay, stay home then. And just, just to be on the safe side, which that's our policy. That's great. Totally. But my question is then, would you have any idea of like how many days? Like it's one thing if you're sick, we got it. But if my son who'd had a fever last Monday, 102.8, when, when is it okay for maybe responsible for the parent to be, okay, I think I passed the threshold. Yeah. Anybody, anybody, anybody? Oh, Mark, you lost your sound, Mark. Lost your sound, Mark. I How's think that? You put on is that better? There you are. Good. You there. You're back. Um, so this is definitely something we've been talking a lot about, both personally and my kids' school, as they're trying to figure out what to do when we go back. Because how do you know? You know, there's a lot of things that cause fevers in kids, and so yeah. if you're going to be sort of the most conservative route would be after every fever, do we quarantine that long? Well, then who? Like who's ever going to be at school at that point, you know? Yeah. And, and so I think this is, I, I don't have a great answer for this. I don't know if Steven, you know, he was shaking his head while my mic was muted. So I don't, I don't expect for him to have a, a great answer either, yeah. but I think that's why we need the paper tests. That's, I, yeah, well, exactly. I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Is that this is the scenario yeah. that widespread low cost testing could make a really big difference so that we yeah. reduce the burden of missed days at school, missed days at work for parents who are taking care of kids who had a fever last week, you know, this, and yeah. uh, that that's why it's so important. 
And I do think a lot of these, you know, we've had a lot of questions about schools and stuff. And I think, Stephen, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a thought that this is going to have to be sort of a local determination that you're going to have to enter in a conversation with the families in your institution, with the local epidemiologists who know what the prevalence is in your area and the, your ability, you know, based on your school environment to do certain physical distancing measures that may or may not, you know, be more or less helpful and, and then kind of make a local determination about your policies, which is tough. It'd be nice to have kind of blanket guidelines for everybody, but we, as we've seen, this virus just has, you know, everything, all these factors are pretty substantial in the actual spread. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And, and to, I mean, to sort of take that maybe one step more general, I think that, that there's been a really consistent element of this outbreak that has required us to reevaluate systems and thresholds and things that we do to determine, you know, how much contagion in, in a given place. Like, like there's, there's so much about COVID that is very local and very community based and varies depending on the comorbidities in that community and just what time of year it is and, and who's there and what the age distribution is and what the tolerance of risk is and what sorts of jobs people are working, all of these different things. And, and you can never, you can never create a set of guidelines that covers all of them. And I think there's, uh, there's a real desire in, in certain branches of public health to just sort of deal with every scenario so that you sort of have this set of guidelines that you just, you just follow and just tack down. You know, but it really, I, I think it's, yeah, uh, there's, there's a, there's a real difficulty because I don't see any other way of doing this other than with your very local communities and having conversation about your levels of risk and your desires and what, you know, what, what you're after, what are the, what are the goods that you're after and what are the things that you feel you can risk to attain them? Man, you're tapping into the most vulnerable part of the American, like soul. I feel like the the idea of like the, the, the I mean, I think other countries handled it differently, you know, better and worse, and however that be the case. But man, even hearing you say that like makes me feel so vulnerable. And I'm so you know, we this country is such a country that is prides itself in control and self control. Maybe not necessarily self control since it's like ethics, but uh, like control, <laughs> control. Uh, and and then hear that no, you want this to be like I, I need a plan. I need a plan to be able to do this. And you're telling me that talk to my local school for like and talk about my desires. What, how, what does that have to do anything <laughs> with like with COVID? You know, and so, but it does. I mean, th- this is a big. This is the big problem. And it's opening, I think, a bigger door for um, authentic discussion mm-hmm. if we can actually get there. About we had uh, a meeting, local you know, via Zoom with my uh, kids' school yesterday, and I, th- I think was a good exemplar of how this sort of thing can be handled well. You know, they've done a lot of kind of prudent consultation and then they turned outward to the community of families and have had a lot of opportunities for feedback and conversation and you know similar to how i think for me a lot of this you know these conversations have been really helpful in terms of there's evidence right but a lot of what we encounter has to be kind of grappled with in conversation and it's been this has really driven that home for me again and again you know from march all the way till now about how uh, valuable the kind of knowledge that you gain through nuanced conversation can be and so i was just uh, wanted to commend our you know our kids school it's a public you know public charter and dps and they did a really good job i think of handling this yeah, I, I, my mind's kind of going all over the place, but I have some clients and we talk about systems because I love systems and might feel like it's not relevant. But it's one thing is people have a strong aversion to systems. Some people do. Some people love it. I love it. 
because it feels like it imposes like a square onto some kind of thing, a cookie cutter that forces everyone to act the same way. And that's the real risk of systems, right? The, you know, these, we've seen this with the CDC, the system in place that was cookie cutter and ca- its, its ability to be, to be agile caused some significant you know, backlash. And they realize that uh, maybe we're learning that systems are there to serve the public, right? And so they need to be, they, when we develop them, we need to develop them in, in, with a framework of having agility built into them. Because mm-hmm. if we don't, then it, it actually destroys the very thing it's trying to obtain, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Order, right? Yeah. Assistance, yeah. right? Anyway, I like it. just my, my little, my soapbox. Yeah. Okay. As we land the plane, a couple more things here that I want to look at. We looked at Americans Fear. How do we get people to take COVID? Oh, forget about that. The scourge. Oh, no. I want to talk briefly about face masks. Just bring it up. I, you know, there's more and more evidence about how useful face masks are. I found it just really, I didn't talk to you guys about this. I found it fascinating. There was an article that somebody posted on Facebook that's from 2015, and they, they resurfaced it as somehow like, a backhanded way to talk about how face masks are pointless by saying that the evidence shows that cloth and face masks are oftentimes more, more efficacious than surgical face masks. Hmm. And I'm like, I have never, I'm like, okay, I have no idea why this is like some kind of slap against face against face masks, but I've seen growing evidence that cloth face, especially if they're multi-layered, right? They, they do a great job or a, a, a good job to uh, help you prevent the airborne particles from leaving your face. Mm-hmm. But I have no idea how this is somehow an argument against face masks, but except for, Hey, I don't know either. Cloth face I think, I mean, really it seems, and they, it seems and they like can the be stylish. There. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have no That's idea. Right. So I wanted That's to bring right. that up. I don't, I'm so it's, it's one of many things I'm fundamentally confused about when I, when I, when I, when I, when I look at Facebook and some of the people who are talking about stuff, yeah. uh, this one I want to talk about briefly. I got it from the Atlantic. Of course, I love the Atlantic. The scourge of hygiene theater. Mm. This was great. This whole case, say back in March, we saw this really, we didn't know what the virus was. There was so many unknowns. We scrubbed everything, washed our groceries, all this stuff. We didn't know what, so the unknowns made us go all in. Yeah, I think we had a now whole we've episode more, about surface transmission yes. or two or three. I feel like we talked about it all the we time. We might have had, you know. We do, yeah, it is all the time. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's a big thing. And so now I've seen this really hit the news this past seven days. Mm-hmm. There's been three articles, at least on this, saying that, look, we've now know enough to realize that cleaning your, your mail and your, and, your, and your vegetables and your packages really is not necessary. They comp- I loved how they talked about how hygiene theater, mm-hmm. and they, they compared it to 9-11 when we had this terrible tragedy, and the response was higher level of security in our, in our airports. Makes sense, but when you're constantly patting down grandma who's 97 years old and putting her through all these screens chances are she's not the one who's going to blow up the plane, right? It, it, they talk, it, it was more like theater to get the people to feel a sense, an emotional sense mm-hmm. that they feel safe. But it's not a real sense, right? It's an emotional sense. And, and, and I loved, I just love this article. So I want to really, anybody who's struggling with spending time washing their groceries, their packages, to read this, I'll put it in the show notes. It was really helpful for me. They gave the example of, yes, there was, a, there was an article from The Lancet that did a study about how the COVID can last on services for days. But they gave a great example. Like, if you actually look at the study, the actual threshold, the amount of virus needed to actually be on that, that surface to, to potentially would, to infect you, they said, you would need a hundred people to sneeze on the same area 
right? And and then after a short period of time to come in contact with it. I mean, that's uh, that, that would be conspiracy. <laughs> okay, if some if there's a line of a hundred people with COVID sneezing on an object, just run from that location because there's something else going <laughs> yeah, on. Right, right. That's what I was, I so, was thinking. The logistical challenge alone is just uh, it's just mind boggling. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and you know, and again, if you want evidence, I gave this example from from Seoul and South Korea. There was an 11th floor building that had an outbreak. Uh, it was a call center. So everybody's talking. There's they're yelling. So there's a lot of airborne, and so there's like a thousand people who got infected, but over the entire building, only 1%. So you have all these people going up and down the elevator, touching surfaces all over. And this gives you this, this anecdotal evidence mm-hmm. that, that, okay, it, it's airborne. It, take, take, take that, reallocate that energy to something that's more yeah. fruitful. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Cut down on the things that we don't have to do and, and the things that are wasteful or that put up unnecessary barriers to getting back to mm-hmm. life and maintain the things that are actually helpful. I think this is great. Yep. Yep. I do want to insert just sort of one thing here that, that in addition to that, I I would hope that people can be graceful with themselves and with others who have been wiping down groceries and things like this for, for a long period of time as well. Because I think that one of the things I've noticed with, with a lot of this pandemic is that there's, there's almost this economy of smugness where people want to be right in the absence of evidence. Right. And then when something comes out, it's like, ah, I told you so. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah. well, it's well, like, well, like we didn't know. And like some people will err on the side of caution for some period of time. And that, and that's, that doesn't necessarily mean that you like knew better beforehand. It's just like this, you know, yeah. it's again, this sort of process of like, of like things changing. So I think that you know there have been there have been a lot of things you know I I got fed up with wiping down groceries probably after two weeks of doing it and haven't been doing it for a very long time but I I know other people who have have been doing it you know quasi religiously up until now and very there are a lot of other things that I still probably do that aren't necessary like washing my hands after touching any doorknob that's outside of my house you know but there's like I think there's, there's, there is a lot of importance here, like as we're dealing with ourselves and with each other to recognize that like we're in this process of learning things together too. And that, you know, it, it's, it's not a, it's not a thing of shame necessarily to have done those things or even to continue doing those things as long as they're not interfering with your ability to actually be safe and to actually sort of conduct your life. So. Uh, that's good. And okay. Two things we'll end on this. This is the surface that you just said, Stephen. The first thing is, Hey, Total full disclosure. We still clean our groceries. So even though I'm saying this, we do everything. We are we are cray cray over here. So we we are we are scrubbing, letting mail. We'll probably continue to do that for a while. So I I, I say this, but I I, 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 I we're on the we, other we end of the spectrum story here out of out of concern. So. Yeah, you are okay. You guys, you guys are like it's looking great. telephone poles. We're like, that. we're like, we're, we're like trying to, you know, like stiff arming the two year old to keep him away from the cherries before it gets in the door, and like he's like climbing up the <laughs> oh, arm yeah. that's trying to, you know, it's just like oh, they're, yeah. they're just no, yeah, it's just we've, yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't know if we've ever been able to <laughs> successfully do it. So we just lock our children in cages for thirty minutes and then we let them out when the grocery are <laughs> <Yeah>. sanitized. <laughs> so. You know, and this is, I'll draw, I'll, I'll end on this drop of a bomb, or maybe this is going to fall flat and this makes no sense out of my mind. But is there anything relational, like a relational to the idea that here we are, people wearing masks and doing these things, and there's this like growing divergence of like, oh, you're that person. Right. Because when I went to that climbing, I was the only one wearing a mask. And I think at some sometimes people were thinking, oh, you're that person. Right. Is that kind of a microcosm of the entire like racial injustice? Like, I mean, it's just like that it's, 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 it's Malcolm Gladwell's book. I think it was like a talking with strangers. If you haven't read it, you got to read it. It's so great. But it's, you know, he was kind of proposing almost 
Now, I don't know if I, he was he was meaning this. So I, I, I'm so sorry if this is not what he's saying. I'm, I'm, this is just me interpreting that not much so much of racial injustice in some areas as it is somebody who's different from me. And, that, and, mm. and, it's, and it's the idea of difference that actually just resonates so violent with us. And sometimes like you're just different. And I'm seeing this on a microcosm of like when I'm now I'm acting differently because of certain taking precautions and I'm being treated differently now because I'm no longer one of them. Right. I'm that group. Now I've, now I set myself aside. So I feel like it's a microcosm of the bigger reality of our cultural problem. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think I also want to keep categories distinct, you know, as much as we can, because I think there's very, you know, hugely different things at play in in each of those, in in each of those uh, particular issues. That being said, I think the human tendency towards categorization and making other people or, or just the sense of difference yeah. and other, you know, is something that we're really kind of in the midst of grappling with as a society on yeah. all sorts sure. of different levels with all sorts of different kind of factors in play. So I definitely, that, yep. that part resonates for sure is the sense of like, and how do we deal, you know, deal with the other. It's, it's interesting to me. I think I love the idea of hospitality as being the virtue that is complementary to that tendency or, you know, kind of that, that a lot of our, you know, tendencies are countered by particular virtues. And this one of how do we encounter an other who's actually other than us, who's is, I think, I love the idea of hospitality being kind of a, a the positive description of what we can do in the place of that. So that's yeah. great. Love to land on that. So what's your one thing you're going to do to be more hospitable to those around you? Uh, and, and to practice a greater sense of discovery. Okay, we're going to end there. Again, if you want to reach out to me and the podcast, right? And Matt at livingthereal.com. Love to hear what's going on in your, in your world, your country. Love to hear updates and what, what you think about the podcast. Want to get a hold of Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-I-S-S-L-E-R on Twitter. Again, please leave a review. It's so helpful. And we always need financial support to pay off all the crazy stuff that we've got to bring this to you quickly so I can move on to other things, maybe not better, but just other things in my life that I have responsibility over. And uh, anyway, other than that, and check out livingreal.com, Mark and I's conversation, just as wonderful as is with Stephen, good, good brothers to chat with. Check it out on livingreal.com and subscribe to the podcast and download that visual conversation. We will see you guys all next week. And gals, take care. Bye-bye.